Welcome to Back to Us, the podcast. Join us, Lynn and Carolyn, as we decompress after leaving the fire and brimstone of evangelical spaces. Before we begin, this episode contains discussions of depression, suicidal ideation, disordered eating, and other mental health talk that some may find triggering. If you or a loved one is struggling with thoughts of self-harm, you can call 1-800-273-8255 if you're in the U.S. We've listed this resource as well as other resources for different parts of the world in our show notes below. Thank you for listening and take care of yourselves. Good morning, Carolyn. Yes, it's morning. This is so weird. We're actually, we usually do like late afternoon, but um, greetings, everyone. <laughs> greetings. We both need to wake up. We do. I'm really trying to like nurse this coffee, but if anybody hears um, a sound in the background that sounds remarkably like a weed whacker, that's because it is a weed whacker. My husband's doing some weed whacking today. So uh, just a heads up. Lynn also has cat drama going on. So if you hear meowing or hissing, I may take a brief, a brief exit in return after I break up a cat fight, so. Yeah, there's some serious cat drama going on. So if any of our listeners has any tips on how to mitigate some cat drama, because I mean, how long has that been going on for? A couple years. Has that been like as long as you've had them? I've had them now for four years. I think as they've reached maturity and the vet thinks that my boy cat can smell the neighbor cats or there may be a cat outside that comes around at night, which I have, you know, seen some. Oh. Frustrated that he cannot go mingle with them. So he's taking it on the girl cat. Anywho, speaking of uh, relational issues. Yes, that brings us to our topic quite nicely today. Um, we want to talk about neurodiversity and more specifically neurodivergence now that we're learning how to use those terms. So we were talking in our last episode about how we weren't sure which terms were the right ones to use. Um, and I accidentally happened upon a post on Instagram that I'll link to in the show notes. Um, it's a post from Disability Together and they say in the post, let's talk about neurodivergence versus neurodiversity. So neurodivergence is used to describe people whose brains, thought processes, processes, and or cognitive abilities differ from neurotypical brains and abilities. Uh, This may be due to autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, learning disabilities, sensory processing disorders, some mental illnesses, and more. The term was coined by Judy Singer in her book, Disability Discourse. Neurodiversity refers to a group of people in which some people are neurotypical and some people are neurodivergent. Neurodiversity is important because everyone thinks and processes the world differently and all perspectives deserve to be seen, valued, and treated equally. It's important to use the right term. Well, now hopefully I will remember to use the right term. So for example, a group that solely consists of autistic people would be referred to as neurodivergent. A group with neurotypical people and autistic people would be neurodiversity. That's just an example. Mm. Makes sense? But I thought that was kind of a good way of explaining it. Um, so I suppose for our purposes, then Lynn and I would both be considered neurodivergent. Well, I like that term really because there are some things about being neurodivergent that are not always negative. Like it, it always seemed to be weird to say like, for example, I have ADHD, to say like, oh yeah, I'm mentally ill because like, it's not all bad. 
I feel like it kind of allows for creativity and, um, you know, just some things that are positive. I mean, of course, there's definitely struggles there. Like, what I wouldn't give to have a linear thought process for once <laughs> ever in my life, I think that would be awesome. Um, but, you know, it's not all bad. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Lynn? Um, I had no idea what those terms really meant until right now. I think it's interesting that, I mean, obviously I believe like the term mental illness is valid because, you know, diversity slash virgin, virgins, divergence in our mental function can become so disruptive that it, it really affects our lives. But, you know, then there's this question of like everything that could be being a little different sometimes gets classified as a mental illness. And is it really an illness? Like at what point is it an illness? And at what point is it, you know, is it, is it going to be divergence? If I say that, like things called OCD, ADHD, like anything with a diagnosis, are those what would be called neurodivergence or neurodiversity? Those would be neurodivergence. So neuro, neurodiversity refers to like, there's many people in a room. Some people are going to not have neurodivergence and some people are, and all of those people together, you know, that's neurodiversity. Does that okay. Mean? No, no, no. It does make sense. Like, and that's where I like the term neurodivergence. Like, is that something people are using to kind of replace the terms mental illness in certain yeah, I think that's the general idea. Um, like but it is, it is true, though, like what you said, because certain things like, um, yep. what was I saying? Oh, that's the title of the episode, probably. <laughs> what was I saying? Where was I going? I Can I add something on a, well, Absolutely. it's a great day to do this because I am actually coming off of some mood stabilizing medication and I'm currently experiencing some withdrawal symptoms which are causing focus issues um uh, so if there are thoughts that are disjointed today that may be perhaps some of my old uh symptoms resurfacing as the withdrawal process is continuing it's not horrible but it's noticeable so um, gotcha. no worries let it all hang out we'll just we'll go through it together but yeah, I know it was, in it's interesting because like certain things that we think of as being really negative, for example, like we have a relative that has pretty intense schizophrenia. It's now treated. They're doing fine now, but it was a very kind of scary thing as well as, you know, de depression. There are certain things that are usually just referred to as mental illness because it's hard to see the positives there. You know, like people really, really suffer. And I think maybe that's when we would still be saying like mental illness. I could be wrong there because you also don't want to judge those people and say like, oh, those people are mentally ill. And that's kind of another thing I wanted to go into as well would be like over identification because I feel like that can be dangerous because that can set us up for um, abusive situations later on. But uh, Lynn, did you want to maybe go into a little bit your sort of journey with being neurodivergent and maybe like, I'm not sure if the church factors into that at all. I know for my experience, it did for me. Um, but do you want to maybe share a little bit about your journey there? Yeah, I can talk about the journey and how I perceived my mental illness, my neurodivergence, um, in light of the, the Christian tradition that I was in. Because... Mm. Um, 
like the circle that we were in was more of the you know pray it off kind of thing like not always like there were definitely certain churches where it was kind of like um like actually the wesleyan church that i was in was like i think some people would have probably said pray it off but like um or if your faith was stronger you wouldn't be struggling yeah or they didn't say it like that but i could tell like oh you just need to have more faith yeah but there are a lot of people who didn't who just reacted to it like it was you know just you know, an issue like any other issue that people struggle with. So not everybody was like that, but more in, um, I would say like more intense kind of Pentecostal circles. It was more like, you know, like the laying on of hands and praying, you know, that it would disappear. And for people who do have healings like that, like I'm not, you know, I don't want to judge their experience at all, but sometimes that was, that made me feel bad Mm -hmm. that I thought, well, I don't have faith. That's why I'm struggling or that's why I have a mental illness is because I'm not praying right. I'm not going to church often enough. So I guess before I go there, though, I should say my journey was that I was diagnosed with OCD, depression, and anxiety when I was, what, like 13, 14? So for the next several years, it was one SSRI after another. And they had some effect, perhaps. Um, Some of them actually made me more symptomatic almost what i would recognize now as hypomanic Mm. high and you know weight gain um i don't remember any sleep issues i don't remember but just having kind of strange side effects or just it was either you know weight gain or just not seeing any benefit so paxil wellbutrin zoloft I, there were a couple of more. Did I say Wellbutrin? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, is Paxil even used anymore? I don't know, but I had a I had a stint with Paxil as well. That was the first one I started on when I was like 19. I remember my, my dad, oh, 19? Yeah, I was 19 when I started that. I remember like because of the work my dad does in mental health, like um, he had like a stress ball shaped like an orange head and it, it was like a promotional little product for Paxil. So it was like a little head that you squeeze and it said Paxil on it. That's one thing because you're in the States and I'm in Canada and that's one big difference I find is in Canada, we don't have like the ads and the like merch that you guys have for like the the pharmaceuticals like I always I can tell when I'm watching an American station when all the commercials are pharmaceuticals and cars <laughs> like, oh, yeah. and then there's commercials for like and, and food and yeah, crap oh, yeah. so oh yeah I should say too like I remember once like I would take all like the little notepads you know promotional notepads and pens that have names of drugs on them here <laughs> um and I like brought it to school or something and I like oh, no note for my teacher I don't know what it was but then I looked it was Risperdal I think it was like a Risperdal notepad isn't that an antipsychotic were you did they give you Risperdal no it was just I think my dad would or like your dad note. had it oh okay right yeah somehow like these little you know, pens and balls and whatever so I like he'd always bring them home because it was like you know free paper little toys so yeah I remember bringing <laughs> being like I think I just like used a notepad that had antipsychotic meds named on it oh no so anyway yeah so I was on all this treatment with SSRIs and then nothing was seeming to fit together like nothing was getting better I was super depressed having suicidal thoughts which I never would act on like I knew I wouldn't but I kind of had like this urge to do things like urge sometimes yeah like 
I came close like to taking like a whole bottle of pills and I was scared to do it. Like I remember being like, there've been times where I was stopped like by a family member, but like, wow. Yeah. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I knew I was, I think I realized that it just felt good to like, I don't know why it felt like satisfying to just hold it and like toy with the idea of it. I don't know why. I did that too. I remember that. Well, you know what? It's funny. Actually, well, not funny, but I don't remember that, but I read a journal entry where apparently I was doing that. And it was like either the beginning of grade 11 or grade 12. I can't remember, but I'm like, oh yeah, start school today. Also, I can't remember how I said it, but I was like dumped a bunch of pills in my hand and thought about it. Like I, and I read it and I was like, whoa, what? I don't remember that. Whoa. Yeah. We'll see. We've locked that out. And this is something we'll get into as well. Like selective memory, I believe, you know, not selective, like blanking out. Cause there's a lot of this that I don't remember. And my parents will tell me stuff or my sister. And I'm like, I have no memory of that. Like my own behavior, like stuff that happened. And sometimes it was even like normal stuff that just in that period of time, I don't remember. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just crazy. I don't know. That's crazy. We both experienced that and didn't know it. But yeah, like times like that, it was really difficult, definitely worse under stress or family, you know, issues, but like, and even things like school, like I hated school, hated being around people all day, loved my friends. I had a couple of really close friends, which looking back, like God bless them because they were really patient with me and weren't embarrassed to be seen with me. But my behavior was, yeah, seventh and eighth grade, even sixth, like sixth through eighth grade, was I, I was off the wall sometimes, either off the wall or really depressed. So I think we can all see where this is going later, fast forward like 10 years, no, like 15 years, being almost 30, and finally diagnosed with, you know, not otherwise specified or not type not specified, I suppose, bipolar, could be psychothymia, could be something else. Um, right now we're kind of wondering if it's maybe if that is true or if, if I kind of have like, you know, just mood instability that's not a full disorder, which is why we're experimenting with tapering off Lamictal right now. But yeah, I mean, it may be something that just flares up under stress, but it was extremely disruptive of my life, my work, um, panic attacks in my office all the time when I was working in an office, like just triggers, everything was triggers, the wrong noise, the wrong conversation the wrong mm-hmm. I don't know sights sights and sounds especially sounds like just I started to feel like I was questioning if I had autism like yeah I would there was once in one of my jobs I worked at a school and I one of the other teachers had like uh their tutors had a Rubik's cube and this is where I started questioning because I took that Rubik's cube and I went in the library on my lunch break and I'd sit there with this Rubik's cube and I was like, oh my gosh, something's not right. <laughs> something's divergent. So yeah, that's my experience. Um, and I guess like relating to like religious views now, like now I don't see suffering as a punishment. Mm. Not always. Like I believe God lets things happen like as our own consequences, which sometimes it's consequences like that we would imagine like if I do something really not right to somebody, you know, they may do something back to me to retaliate. Like, that's not, I'm mm. not going to, oh, that's, oh, a demon has come in. Like, which consequences are consequences. Yeah. But I do, you know, now we, it was very refreshing to me, like in orthodoxy, that they believe that struggles are an opportunity for salvation. Like, mm. 
learning to persevere through things, learning to build your strength, your patience, your character, like to struggle through something, to learn how to struggle through something and not be bitter and not be angry. And obviously like we believe in like miracles and healing, but we don't seek out like, we don't seek out those experiences in like an emotional way. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think if people have been in certain like Protestant circles, you may know what I'm talking about. Mm. Like you tell somebody you're sick and it becomes this very intense experience of, you know, the laying on of hands and, you know, uh, spontaneous preaching and prophesying about what's going to happen to you, which can also be harmful because, yeah, you know, like I'll, being prophesied that you're going to be healed and everything's going to be fine. And then it's not like that kind of stuff, I believe, can be damaging. It never happened to me. Um, other things, you know, quote, prophesied about my life from... Really? Yeah, like, I don't know. It's just so strange. It's almost weird to even talk about it. But, like, I don't know, like, good things, like, oh, I see that, like, you know... I don't remember specifically. I just remember people saying things about, like, like good things about my future, which is nice, but I think it's more just, like, hoping, you know, for somebody else. But, yeah, like... Now I see, like, I guess this is where we see it as, like, this is my cross to carry. And for some reason, this has been allowed, like, God has allowed this to be my experience, but it doesn't mean I'm, like, I have a mental problem because of something that I did. Right. Or, like, in scripture, it says, what my parents have done. You know, like, there's a story about the guy where, like, he's blind, and I think he's blind or is he paralyzed? And he asked for healing and someone's like, oh, what did his parents do that he has ended up like this? Oh, Forget I don't it. remember. And then um, the whole point is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> if, I, if I'm correct, I may be incorrect, but I, I need to look at that. Because then I remember too, like some of the interpretations are like, there are consequences like for our actions. So like if I lead a really unhealthy lifestyle and I'm doing like, you know, illicit drugs and stuff, like I'm probably going to get some sort of illness. Yeah physical illness but you know anyway that has been my experience um how about you interesting yeah a lot of similarities there actually and I think I go back and forth honestly I I think about it frequently because I wonder how much of my experience is because of trauma and how much is because of something innately you know innately Uh, a certain way within my own brain chemistry. I frequently wonder because when I was like 19 and diagnosed with anxiety, first of all, back up a little bit. Like when I was writing in high school about like being depressed, oftentimes I would write too about like, I wanted to just fly away out a window. (laughs) That was like a very frequent theme is like, I want to get away. I want to run away. Um, I want to fly away you know, and I would, I don't want to come back. And I didn't necessarily want to die, for example. Anyway, yeah, I didn't really, I was just, I felt imprisoned and trapped in my own body. And I was disembodied for so much of my life. And I had no idea really how to express that or what to do about that. And I think growing up in evangelicalism, there's no tools for that. And oftentimes, we are cut off from our own you trusting ourselves, like we're cut off from our critical thinking and we're cut off from like our intuition and our gut feeling. So it kind of felt like I was, wasn't left with anything. And I was living in so much fear, fear of going to hell, um, you know, fear of the rapture, which is still something we need to talk about. Um, 
fear of my friends going to hell, just being afraid that whenever I was feeling comfortable and content, that God was not happy with me because that was a frequent theme in sermons as well as if you're comfortable, God does not want you in your comfort zone. You're doing something wrong. So I was always on edge. I lived most of my life, you know, in fight or flight, but it was so normalized. I just had no idea that any of that was really going on inside of me. I just knew I didn't feel right. Um, And so I did. I dealt with a lot of anxiety, a lot of abandonment issues. And then when I was 19, I was in a not so good relationship. I'm not going to go into detail about that, but I was feeling a lot of anxiety around that. And I finally told my parents because I had told them for years and years, like, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. And um, they actually made me talk. Well, not made me. They arranged for me to talk to a psychologist that was a friend of theirs. And he was a Christian psychologist, nothing against Christian psychologists, but oftentimes they, you know, even if they have mental health training, they still have their belief system that they're operating in. And he was just very, you know, I, I think I remembered he was talking to me about, oh, I was telling him because I wasn't really eating and it wasn't really, I did have some disordered pat- patterns around my weight. And I think a lot of that was because I didn't, I was so cut off from my own body. I didn't even know how I looked until I saw pictures of myself. So a lot of the time I just felt not in control. And the one thing I could control kind of was like when I was eating, but also when I was anxious, my, it would make my stomach upset and I wouldn't be hungry. So I remember mm-hmm. telling him like, I'm really, really anxious and I'm having trouble eating. And he would say things like, well, maybe just eat foods you like to eat. <laughs> I was like, um, the whole point is that I don't like to eat anything right now. And he's like, oh, well, did you ever think that maybe you don't need to feel that way? And I was like, huh, what a revelation. Thank you. This was not a waste of my time. (laughs) Like everything he said was something completely, no offense to anyone, but completely mindless. So then around that time, I thought that was in high school, but I think that was right around the time I was um, done my first year university and uh, I started on the Paxil, which I thought helped, but very briefly. And really, I felt better as soon as I got out of that relationship and then honestly left the church when I was around 20. That's when everything, a lot of things changed for me, but I never, I didn't address any of the issues that were really the problem, like the disembodiment, um, the, the constant fear, just believing, you know, that I, I would never be good enough, you know, um, because the whole point is you're not good enough because Jesus makes you good enough, but Jesus doesn't like you if you're not you know, doing all the things that you need to be doing. So it was this constant conditional pattern, like this conditional thing. And it just was, it felt exhausting because you could never live up to it. So I look back on that and I think like, would I have had anxiety if it wasn't, because yes, the relationship wasn't good, but also a lot of our friend circle was in this group, this also Protestant, similar lane to what you were talking about, laying on of hands. And if you're sick, it's a spiritual attack, things like that. Um, which also, I never felt at home with that group. Um, I don't know if they still, they were all very young too. I don't know if they're still sort of in that line of thinking. I think some of them are, from what I can tell, some of them have maybe left, but I'm not really in contact with them. But basically that's kind of when it started. And then, so I just kind of assumed like, yeah, I don't know. I've struggled with anxiety and depression and like similar to you Lynn, as well. I started on the SSRI train. Cause I had that like biting depression that never went away. So 
did the Zoloft and I can't even remember what else, honestly. Um, they didn't help. And then I think the only thing that did help, the one thing I still take is Wellbutrin, which still was the only thing that didn't completely dull me and like turn everything, like some of these medications turned everything down for me. And then also similarly, when I was, I think in my mid twenties, I was diagnosed with um, bipolar kind of because I was looking back at all the depression and looking back at similar to what you were saying, Lynn, about like acting out. And I was like, oh, maybe this is what I have. So then I talked to you again, a Christian psychiatrist (laughs) that my parents found very similar situation. She heard about like me drinking in college and assumed that was mania and was like, you're probably bipolar. And I couldn't, she was in America and I was in Canada. So she couldn't prescribe me anything. So she said, go home, tell your doctor you need to billify. So I started taking atypical antipsychotics. I think they're all atypical, which I didn't need. I never once had a psychotic episode. <laughs> like, you want an atypical antipsychotic? What's that? That was the first thing she tried? I told her I was taking, oh, because this was after I skipped a thing. I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. I was also diagnosed with ADD in my early 20s because, and I, that's the thing that I feel like affected my mind the most was just my disorganization and all of that just completely it got so much worse when I became an adult and had more responsibilities so um I was put on Adderall I think I was taking Adderall and Wellbutrin she heard that and was like no you should not be taking that it's going to make your mania quote-unquote worse so she said go to your doctor tell them you want to be put on Abilify so I found um actually a, a decent enough psychiatrist in Toronto. And he actually didn't agree with taking me off the Adderall because it's ADHD. And he was like, okay, well, we'll try a bill. He even said, he's like, I'm not convinced about the bipolar thing. He's like, but we'll try and treat you for the symptoms. So then very long story, even longer, it ended up being similar again, uh, Adderall and uh, Lamotrigen. But then eventually ended up going back on Wellbutrin instead of Adderall because I didn't have any coverage and Adderall is $4 million. Also, Adderall made me feel really weird. It gave me this strange, like, nihilistic feeling, and it made me really tired later in the day, like it would wear off. So now I know that there's a lot more options, and I'm trying to sort of work that out. Like, we're kind of just sort of getting established here, where we we just moved a couple years ago. So I'm still have not gotten it all sorted out yet. I'm not really treating the ADHD like it should be. But one of the things that I learned was just how many of my symptoms ADHD can kind of explain. My therapist is, um, she specializes in ADHD, especially for women. And she was talking about emotional dysregulation, how that can be. For example, she said a lot of us are misdiagnosed as bipolar because uh, some of our behavior is seen as manic when actually the pattern doesn't really follow bipolar. It's really, you know, the ADHD kind of affects your emotional regulation and something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So if you're, if you sense that in a situation you might be rejected, for example, if someone even looks at you funny or like if you don't feel accepted in a group, um, you react as if you've just been like, you know, rejected and you know, you might either, if you don't cause a scene, you either internal, like for me, I usually just internalize that stuff. That's all very much a part of it. Of course, that can be a part of other like neurodivergent things as well. 
neurodivergencies. I don't know if that's how you put that. It is a very, it's confusing to even think about like sort of my journey with all of that because I can't, I, I remember it all out of order. And honestly, a lot of the years when I was on Abilify and like those other antipsychotics, I don't remember a lot of it. And I feel like those medications did something where like a lot of those years in Toronto kind of blend together. I don't remember kind of a lot of what happened. Um, I even stopped, like I usually like writing. I have a lot of journals still from over the years. I didn't even write during that time, like just kind of a dark spot, you know, but yeah, there wasn't really a lot of talk about mental health growing up in the church. And um, it was a lot of just, you know, just pray. Like the biggest concern was, are you praying and reading your Bible enough? That is the biggest concern. And if you are, God will bless you. If not, what's wrong with you? Go open your Bible. <laughs> so that's kind of, but yeah, I know it's a, it's a long kind of confusing thing. And I do wonder how much the trauma played into the symptoms I experienced. I still wonder that. Well, especially having, I guess in my case, having OCD and the depression, like feeling hopeless, some of the theology that we were raised with. And of course, I wonder how much of this was genetic with us and life circumstantial, but I guess where, where our beliefs would play a part in it, this idea that life is just transitory yeah, that because everything's going to come to an end abruptly and that we, we already knew what was going to happen to us, you know, like, you know, we believed we already knew what was going to happen, which we will definitely get into this at some point. It almost felt kind of like, what's the point then? Yeah. Do you know like if I know, like this is where like getting into like revelation, not revelations, no. revelation. It's my pet peeve. Like I just can't. <laughs> no revelations. Like, it's like heated, usually in heated discussions about like how old the earth is or like how many toes are on the beast and, uh, you know, things like that, that are not entirely um, relevant to hey, the toes on the beast. That's entirely relevant. Not in there. I heard someone say that once, like in a podcast. Oh, you know what? It was this podcast on ancientfaith.com. Totally great, Lord of Spirits. But um, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and I think Stephen DeYoung is his name. We're talking about you know the whole point of that book, which I'm kind of going on a trail here. Like a lot of people get hung up on like interpreting it for themselves and and some of the things that get emphasized are not the most important but it gets um for instance you know saint john references um seven churches i believe or seven cities i can't remember i haven't extensively studied revelation um but that would be you know something that some people will go into and try to figure out which cities in our current world was he talking about which churches in our current world is he talking about and that caused some anxiety like i remember like looking at the world around me and wondering, you know, how it all blended with that and with these, like, just rather than, like, the point of the book being salvific and hopeful, like, that was not something that was ever, ever, like, I mean, there, yeah, maybe it was, like, like, there are some beautiful verses in it that were quoted, like, which are even quoted around Christmas time, um, peace on earth, good world toward men, you know, all these beautiful things um, about angels and light, lightness, but, and good winning over evil. However, yeah, there was a lot of doom and gloom. And I guess this is my point, where did all the doom and gloom fit in with our anxiety? And for me having OCD, it was something that I often obsessed over. Mm. Um, and obsessing over the end of the world at that age and obsessing over how scary it was going to be and obsessing over 
how I have to tell all my friends about it and am I doing the right thing? Which, you know, obviously in like Christian life and I believe anybody's life who's, you know, trying to go on a right way, like what they believe is the right way, like upholding our standards, right? We're all conscious of our behavior. We're all conscious. Most of us try to be conscious of, you know, are we doing the right thing? But obviously there's got to be a limit to that to the point where like, but I guess like, like I've heard it put this way, reading the Bible into headlines. So when I see there has been a landslide, like if there's been some sort of natural disaster, it's because the end of the world is imminent. And so like, that was just so like, you know, I I don't know. They've been doing that for years too. Like since, I guess the first Christians even, it seems like, yeah. A lot of people thought Napoleon was the antichrist and we we know all this stuff and like this is stuff you know prophecies that i still believe but like it it can't be a source of fear it can't be a source of anxiety um and distract from how we conduct our daily life life and relationships with other people i do have a question if you don't mind this is this is going down a rabbit trail but um so you were saying that's still a prophecy that you believe in um, that's probably where we differ. I don't really hold that belief anymore. So how have you come to have that be something that you still believe in, but without fear? Oh, I guess I should say I don't believe it in the same way that I used to. So especially when I was in seminary, this is something that like, I think was upsetting for my family to hear because I would come home and like be really excited about what I was learning, but learning that there are multiple ways to interpret that book mm-hmm. and that it's not always viewed as exclusively futuristic that saint john i believe was he writing it on the island of Patmos, where he was exiled anyway i forget where he wrote it actually yesterday was the saint day of the the scribe who wrote it for him anyway anyway sorry (laughs) there are you know there are all these different beliefs about the order of how things are going to happen um you know trials and tribulations and a rapture i no longer believe in a rapture i don't believe that we are going to figure out everything about it amen (laughs) like we're not going to interpret every detail of it also because as laity like I'm not a priest I'm not a clergy I'm not a prophet like I'm a normal person so you know I'm going to trust in scripture and church tradition but it's not on me and this is where it's freeing it's not on me to interpret every letter of that book or like much like my own interpretations which can be damaging to myself you know what I mean so no like I guess like what do I believe now is that like yeah there will be a final judgment like an individual and a general judgment to have a healthy level of you know preparation and fear of that like healthy fear but not like but hope also and striving every day to try to live right but not in a scary way and and definitely not reading into like you know, because this current event is going on, that's a sign of this and this is that. I mean, I mean, like there are things that we accept, like, yeah, like the earth is struggling, like environmentally, there are sicknesses, there's diseases, there's violence, and that all does point to kind of like the end, but it doesn't mean like, this is the big thing. Don't try to figure out when it is. Don't obsess over who it is, you know, that like there have been lots of antichrists is what we believe, like, I don't know. Oh, that's like, interesting. That that's like the orthodox sort of interpretation of that—that that there's different antichrists. Yeah, there have been many already. Oh, like okay. that's against like you know Christ, and I have to look it up. I don't I forget. Like this is where I'm like a new, a new orthodox Christian. That's like, I have interesting. To, I didn't realize that. Maybe maybe we believe that there is like one, but I mean Satan himself is like the one we need to be concerned about. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, like I get that, I guess. <laughs> like again, that's not necessarily my I don't really some some things I just don't know. I can I file Satan under I don't know. <laughs> like but yeah. it does yeah. seem like the antichrist for a lot of people has taken place the place of like it's almost like they're worshiping the end times and the rapture more than God yeah. and you know. Right. And then this is where like like anxiety and stuff like we were always raised with like thank God like you know like, thank God for all the good things that happened. But it did seem like in the circle that we were in, this was like the dominant, I guess, even framework for how we were living. I mean, I guess, yeah, like I still live according to like, you know, I should be living in care of my soul and what's going to happen to it. But zooming in on the the prophecy of St. John, like, I mean, there's it's a very important thing, but it's not the only book of the Bible that we're supposed to read. Um, yeah, I guess I just believe in it in a very different way. And I, I need to be careful what I say, because I, I may have, you know, some inaccuracies. So check out Lord of Spirits or pick up the book of Revelation for yourself. It's about Lord, Lord of Spirits? Lord of Spirits. Yeah, they're really, you know, they talk about these things and they, um, they're kind of geeky. They're like Lord of the Rings guys, but they, no, they talk about it in a very comforting way, like straightforward. But I, I think a lot of what they talk about is actually for people like us who have left the evangelical church and especially certain circles of it that were really focused on certain understandings of like the unseen world yeah that's what i see was like the way that we were learning that specific book of the bible was like damaging to our how can that not completely change your framework and even like your brain chemistry again i'm not a health professional i don't know how it works but like if you're brought up and for me it wasn't so much my family they didn't really talk about the rapture but it was more the churches we were going to like if that is such a like if you focus that intensely on one day you could wake up and it's just going to be you there's going to be you know your family's going to be gone you know the rapture for example or and even the uncertainty the uncertain part of it like when for example when i came home to my parents and told them that i had to watch the left behind movie or the sorry the steve in the night movies at sunday school oh. and they're kind of like well we don't know we don't think it's going to happen that way but the fact that it's uncertain that to me increased the anxiety because i was like well, we don't know it could be any any which way it could happen it could be any of the terrifying <laughs> possibilities and like if you have even just a predisposition to anxiety, for example, that's going to completely, that can dominate your life. Yeah. And it's interesting because I was talking to my other cousin not long ago um, on my other side of the family. He also grew up in a similar home. I would argue he had a little more freedom maybe than I did. I think his parents maybe respected his opinions because pretty early on, he said he, he's sort of an atheist now, I guess agnostic with hints of atheism was kind of what I got from what he said but it's really interesting because he doesn't have any trauma at all from it he was like yeah I don't know prayer stupid I don't care (laughs) and I was so jealous I was like I wish I could have just you know followed my sort of gut feelings and been like "Nah, don't care what's that the part of town I grew up with was it's super catholic like actually right across the street from me it's a super italian establishment like the major Italian establishment in our city. And like, um, there's a little Catholic chapel dedicated to a saint there. So like, I mean, it is pretty darn Catholic here. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, if Catholic like beliefs are so bad, like, you know, we were always like pushed away from like ever even looking into their beliefs and it was all bad and like, oh, prayer to saints. But I was always kind of questioning, like, I like that they had these little like, 
I don't know. I like their little St. Anthony and St. Michael necklaces. And I'm like, that's so nice. Like they have a patron saint. And like, I just wish that I could have explored my own questions about that too. Yeah. It's just funny. Like both of us like limited our, we, we felt like we couldn't question, like, you know what I mean? We, we couldn't explore our own questions. Yeah. Time. Yeah. Cause there's no room for that. And I guess too, one of the things I sort of wanted to explore when we were having this conversation is about over identifying because it's so tricky with anything. So, I mean, we can look back and see how our upbringing and like the belief system really fed into any maybe predisposition that we had towards neurodivergence. Like the belief system was just a breeding ground for anxiety and things like that. So I guess one of the things I was thinking about was how over-identifying, sometimes when we talked about over-identifying, we talked about it like, well, we don't want to blame everything on the fact that, oh, I forgot this and that because I have ADHD and sort of like, I can't just use it as an excuse forever. Fair enough. If you kind of, if you understand that, you know, you have a certain neurodivergence, you can get treated for it. It's good to get treated for it so that you can function. Um, but for me, the most dangerous thing about over-identifying is if friends and loved ones and whoever else in your life knows that like you have anxiety, for example, that just sets you up. You can be treated any which way. And then you can think like, oh, this actually wasn't that bad. I just have anxiety. So I interpreted it to be worse than it was. Or someone can come to you and say, you know what? You're bipolar. So you took that out of proportion mm -hmm. or you're, you know, you have ADHD, so you can't regulate emotionally. You took what I said the wrong way. So I feel like if you kind of by over-identifying, we can set ourselves up for gaslighting and further emotional abuse by other people, which isn't really something I thought about until, I think I just thought about this a few weeks ago. I was like, well, I guess, you know, we kind of want to be careful with that because, and it can, it does, well, after I had that first initial sort of anxiety diagnosis, I questioned everything. I was like, well, and it did sort of set me up to be treated in a certain way by people. And I was like, well, I just, you know, I'm just taking this out of proportion, you know, um, just in certain relationships. And yeah, I don't know. I guess that's just more of a thought I had than anything else is like, just because you have a neurodivergence doesn't mean that you get to be abused by other people. You know, is what I'm saying? Does that make sense at all? I feel like I'm all over the place. Totally. And like, I, I feel like in the medical system too, like this is partially why I'm experimenting with tapering off is it because like, I've noticed a difference, not with everybody. Like I'm so glad that mental health has gotten more recognition in the medical community, but I guess this is over identifying on the provider end over identifying your patients with what they have. So when I presented for things, like I've had some stuff going on, like physical stuff that's possibly, you know, hormonal, neurological, like, you know, not at all, in my opinion, connected to that, which I'm, I'll be the first person to tell you that like, yeah, everything's connected. Um, but I am working with an integrative doctor and other, you know, providers who do not think this is in my head, conventional and integrative. <laughs> and so, yeah, when I saw, like, like, I had some passing out episodes, which are probably vasovagal slash autonomic nervous system related. Like fainting? Yeah, fainting and stuff. So, you know, if I'm too hungry, if I get overheated, um, if I stand up too fast, like, we're just trying to figure out what's going on. But, you know, I was told that that was in my head. The case notes from the cardiology provider were centered around mental health. 
and I cried in the appointment. It's like I was so upset that like like I bought into it at first. I was like, I've been working on this my whole life. Like, is this what it's come to? Like, this oh, is how it's no. But then like that made its way into the case notes that I was crying and it looked like I was having like some sort of like, you know, bipolar, like depressive like day <laughs> I don't know like it's just it made me wonder like you know we can I over identify it over identify with it which I'm definitely guilty of in relationships like oh I'm sorry you know it's my it's because I have my disorder like yeah sometimes like that's true sometimes I've gotten really triggered by like you know loud sounds or being in public or like being irritable but not always like I think over identifying like takes away like even though I feel worse because it's like, oh, I know that wasn't really my mental condition. It was just me being a jerk. But even like being able to recognize that I'm just being a jerk is good. Rather than being like, like, like assigning everything to something that's out of my control, totally out of my control. Like it takes away your feeling of autonomy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it makes me, it would make me like question any of the thoughts I was having. Yeah. But, like, is this real or is this like, it's like thinking about your you know, what's going on with you mentally, the neurodivergence, it's like thinking about it like it's this big monster inside of you that is just controlling you, which just adds to the fear and anxiety as well. But like, it really does, I think with other people, the way other people treat you too, it kind of lowers your standards, or for me, it would like lower my standards with how I deserve to be treated. Mm -hmm. Where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a mess, so I'm going to be treated like that, you know, when it's like, no, you know what, like, you deserve to be in healthy relationships where people respect you, and there are certain situations where you absolutely have every right to be offended because someone was very mean to you. It's not fair for them to be in a relationship with you, or I don't even mean like a romantic relationship, but in general, just any relationship at all, whether it's family or relationship or whatever. She's like, well, you know, you've got this problem, so you're just taking this out of proportion. It's like, no, you know what? There's actually a problem here. You're actually treating me badly. And <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Like just kind of using totally. it as a scapegoat. Totally. Maybe you've experienced that more than I have, for sure. I can imagine like how painful that must be though. I wonder if it's been something that like, if I have experienced it, it's just gone like unsaid. You know what I mean? But yeah, like, that's just, it's very like something you wouldn't think would happen so much these days with everything. You know, I feel like, I don't know what you think, like there's so much out there about mental health and even like, you know, people creating films about it now. And like, it's really coming out that a lot of people struggle with mental health, but like you still face those kinds of experiences. It makes me sad to hear that you've been treated that way. Um. I do have a question that we don't have to keep this in. If you want me to take this out, I will. But you were talking about, was OCD your first sort of diagnosis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is apparently like, if I do really have bipolar disorder, that would make sense. Because usually the common diagnoses first as a teenager are depression, OCD, anxiety, like depression and OCD. Do you think, like just thinking back to the OCD, because I have certain memories of us being young, being kids. Do you think the OCD was ever capitalized on by the people around you? Definitely. Yeah, I remember. Because I remember, I have a few memories of that to be, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I remember being asked, like, did you take your medication today? Which I think, though, like, if I miss a day of SSRIs, like, it's not going to do anything. Yeah, right? I think you have to miss 
more. Yeah. And like, I remember like I was sensitive, like maybe I could tell, but like, no, like I, I remember being asked, like, did you take your meds today? If I was like, was it like when I was being a little bit like energetic or something or kind of bouncing? No. I mean, when you were younger, I have memories of people asking you things really, and telling you, I need you to tell me what happened at like, for example, I remember being with, I won't say who these family members are, but like I was with you and some family members. And then there were some people that were trying to get you to confess what we were doing. And I remember them asking you being like, you can tell me, you know, you, or you need to tell me. And I remember you feeling obligated to share certain information with people. Yeah. I remember that now too, because they knew that they could winkle things out of me sometimes because I, I was very honest. Like there were nights too, where I see this as part of my OCD. Um, but I felt like I had to, my mom and I would call them like confessions, but I would like confess, like I, I had to get things off my chest. That's what it was, which partially I'm like, that's good. Like, I kind of wish I could have gone to an actual confession, like for things that needed to be confessed, but like, you know, confessing like, oh, I was like a little bit irritable with my teacher today. Like, okay. Like I, everything felt detrimental, any kind of little screw up. So yeah, I had this impulse to get everything off my chest. So if there was something that you and I and relative who shall remain nameless were doing that we thought was funny and like our family members didn't approve and they questioned me about it, I would have definitely felt obligated to say something like, even if it damaged my relationship with you guys, like, and sometimes I would, you know, own up to things with people that really shouldn't have been like mentioned. Like there's some things that you have to be straightforward with your family members about if I've hurt them, you know, but it's this kind of conundrum, like I've done something, you know, if I said something about somebody and I feel bad for what I said, do I need to tell them to their face what I said? Not all, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I would feel com- like compelled to do it because I had to be honest. Telling that person could be extremely damaging. So me being compelled to confess things about you guys, mm-hmm. um, you know, potentially damaging to our relationship. And I remember that that did sometimes have that effect. I remember, cause I was pretty young too. I didn't understand all of it, but I do remember feeling bad because I remember feeling like you were put in a, unfair some unfair situations to like disclose everything and I remember wondering if you were taken advantage advantage of in that way I might get in trouble for saying that but like I do and then I remember you telling me later that you had you know been diagnosed with OCD and I remember wondering like I wonder if that was either sort of encouraged or capitalized on like if you had um, a predisposition to that I wonder how much of that and also how much of our belief system played into that too, because there is a lot of talk about repentance and being good and not being bad and making our parents happy and all of that. I just, it feels like it's all such a breeding ground for things like this to develop and become more than maybe they would be otherwise. I'm not trying to belittle or say that I didn't agree with your diagnosis or anything like that at all. I really don't want to come across that way, but I remember thinking like something's interesting there because I can't remember if I actually saw people asking you questions. I think I did at one point and then, you know, wondered what that could have maybe done to you emotionally and mentally. Um, anyway, that was just sort of, I don't, I don't want to read something more into it than what was there, but like. No, I, I remember too. I do remember that kind of stuff. 
Yeah. And even like, even if it wasn't part of my diagnosis, I mean, it still was like, because that was my tendency was to try to get things off my chest all the time, you know, but I think it definitely was like, I, I think I maybe didn't know that it was related to that at the time. I don't know. Yeah. It was just kind of something that I, that I thought of, but um, yeah, I just think the relationship between sort of how we were brought up and the belief systems it really just sets us up for, you know, having these, these issues, being neurodivergent. And like, even I was looking up the symptoms of repressed trauma in adults. I'll just read this off quickly. You know, we have to go soon. So some lesser known symptoms. This is from helpline.com. I don't know, again, where their sources are, but I think I've seen this other places too. Symptoms of trauma, um, specifically like repressed childhood trauma. Sleep issues, including insomnia, fatigue, nightmares, feelings of doom, low self-esteem, mood symptoms such as anger, anxiety, and depression, confusion or problems with concentration and memory. Hello. That's <laughs> me. Uh, physical symptoms such as um, tense mu- muscles, unexplained pain, stomach distress. So again, I'm not trying to say that I don't believe in, you know, mental illness or neurodivergence, like uh, definitely I don't want to say that at all, but I just find it interesting how similar some of the side effects are to trauma. And I wonder how much, you know, I'll never know <laughs> probably, but like, I just wonder how much is nature and how much is nurture and how much our upbringing and the belief system sort of fed into that. Oh, definitely. Which is funny because like a lot of them don't really acknowledge it. You know, it's a lot of pray it away or go to Bible study etc etc anyway those are my thoughts (laughs) i like them it's very interesting i feel like we should do a part two of this yeah we should we should definitely revisit this it's it's a big issue and it's something that we're still dealing with and i think it's something that we'll have updates on too as we kind of wade through the mental health system and you know we're still early and mid 30s trying to figure it out which tells you something (laughs) Well, any final thoughts? Be you. You do you, listeners. It's my favorite, like, 21st century uh, saying. Exactly. You do you. You Take care of yourselves. Be well. Think about yourselves. (laughs) Yeah, always. And if you ever, if you're dealing with any, you know, thoughts, suicidal ideations, anything like that, please seek help. Because I know we definitely, we talked about some pretty dark stuff today. I really hope that didn't trigger anything you know, too negative and anyone. So um, yeah, definitely seek help. And I'll link whatever resources I can find in our show notes as well. Because I know this was a pretty intense one. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.